put this right up here. All right, uh, welcome to our panel. This is Horror 301. I understand that this is the um, more detailed one. There are two other panels, Horror 101 and Horror, two, Horror 201. Just so happened that time-wise, this was the last one scheduled. So ends up being the first one of the con. Um, so welcome everybody who is here. My name is Crystal Mazur. I am a freelance writer and game developer. I've written on games um, for Vampire 5th Edition. I've written on Never Going Home. I'm also, I'm also the line developer for Pip System for Third Eye Games and a whole bunch of other games. Um, and so I, I'm gonna be the moderator for today. Um, and I'm gonna interject a little bit of things, but I want our panelists to be able to talk a little bit more with their expertise because they are all coming from very different places and I really, really enjoy listening to them talk. <laughs> um, so I'm gonna have them introduce themselves. Hello, hi, I'm Markeia McCarty, uh, M-A-R-K-E-I-A-M-C-C-A-R-T-Y. Uh, and I come from a very diverse um, horror background. Started when I was eight years old. And I, I believe it was called, uh, it was the Santa Claus movie where he's a serial killer. I think someone here might. Silent Jingle. Night, Deadly Night? Uh, <laughs> Silent Night, Deadly Night. Yeah, Silent Night, Deadly Night. It's What's the next <laughs> <laughs> uh, It began with that. And uh, let's say in the, let's just do the past three years, I was the um, head story editor, narrator, uh, director, and creative producer for the Something Scary podcast, which was an animated uh, horror show. It was weekly on YouTube. You can go to youtube.com slash snarled to see it. Uh, 2.182 million subscribers uh, by the time I uh, decided to put the show down and uh, it's under new management now so it is still going strong if you want to see that but um, animated weekly horror show and then there was an accompanying podcast um, with three additional stories these are all fan submitted stories from around the world uh, that we adapted uh, some were animated and then the rest went into the podcast so we averaged um, anywhere from 600,000 to uh, about a million downloads a month on the podcast you can find it everywhere, Spotify, wherever you find your podcast, you'll find it there. Um, as far as uh, tabletop role-playing games are concerned, again, just in the past three years, uh, I'm the community director for Hunter, Hunter's Entertainment, Woo! and <laughs> uh, we do Outbreak Undead. So there was a campaign of Outbreak Undead, it's a zombie apocalypse. Um, the tagline is, your zombie survival plan will fail. Mm. And, and it will, it's just a matter of time, basically. <laughs> Uh, so I was part of a TTRPG campaign where we did that on Twitch uh, three years. It was uh, myself, Luis Corrazzo, Michelle Wynn Bradley, uh, Knox Weiler Berth, uh, and a plethora of wonderful guest stars. Uh, people from the TTRPG community that you know have guested on this show. Uh, and yeah, I, I think that that's plenty, but yeah. Uh, also a professional TTRPG player and GM, and I love to do every twist of horror that can possibly exist out there. Are you paying? Oh, yeah. I mean, you're the, I don't know if we're going in order. Oh, we can jump around. Going order. I, uh, I was, that's I, my mind. <laughs> I'm, I'm uh, Brian Holland. I'm uh, known on the internet, and the uh, author name is B.W. Holland. I'm the uh, marketing director at Chaosium. We make a game Woo! called Call of Cthulhu. <laughs> Got me back. Uh, we make a game called Call of Cthulhu and some, some other stuff, uh, which, is, which is pretty cool. My, my horror origin story um, 
So I, my, my parents are a lot older. It's weird, you know, they're old, well, they're older than me by a lot. Like my dad is older than most people's grandparents. Um, so growing up, we, it, was, it was a pretty chill environment. My parents didn't watch horror movies, but I'll remember like I was like probably eight or nine. I was like playing with Star Wars toys in the lounge room while my parents were watching one of these. Um, it, was, it was like an, did you get these here? It was like, an, it was like E, channel E is like counting down the top 10 X, Y, or Z. And it was like the top 10 horror movies. And I wasn't really paying attention. But they were getting closer to one, and both my parents, who as far as I'm concerned had never even told a ghost story, were, but looked at each other and be like, it'll be The Exorcist. And I switched on, I'm like, why do they suddenly know what this is? And unfortunately, I looked up the TV and saw about 15 seconds of Linda Blair. Oh. And then there are three, three times in my life I remember being so scared I can't sleep, and that was the first one of them. Uh, and it started a morbid fascination with them. So, um, and then the other bit was uh, when I was 15, we were trying to uh, cross the threshold from being a nerd into being a super nerd and me and my friends made a decision that I was going to go into the local nerd shop and buy what at the time was the Star Wars D20 game. I saved up my, my allowance and I walked in there and I looked at this other thing and uh, the clerk there said a few words that have changed my life forever and I said, what's that? He said, that's the vampire game. And I showed up at nerd night where they were all like, everyone's sitting there in Jedi robes and like, we're doing this. <laughs> uh, so yeah, a few years ago, I, um, I started working with uh, Paradox. I did a little bit of work on V5. Now I'm at um, uh, full-time at Chaosium. Um, mostly doing marketing stuff, doing a little bit of creative stuff. My, my first Cthulhu book actually comes out in Halloween this year. So yeah. it's fun. I hope you all buy it. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, that's, that's me. Otherwise, I'm very excited to be here. Thank you for putting it together, Crystal. Yeah. Amazing. Uh, yeah, I'm Knox Weller Burf. I'm the creative director for Hunters Entertainment, and uh, my horror origin is is a little muddled, so I'm not going to sit here and take an hour and a half to tell it. <laughs> but I will give you the brief summary. Um, I had a weird uncle, and I, I this isn't going where you think it is. Okay, it's not as bad as it sounds. I had a weird uncle, and uh, he was obsessed with a few things, and then like you know had had the big nerd energy. Uh, so it all kind of came down to ventriloquist dummies and black and white horror movies. And when I was about six, uh, we would stay over there. We'd visit, and like the the, the, the his uh, his kids were with us, and we'd all have a, a sleepover downstairs in the basement, surrounded by ventriloquist dummies uh, with a TV that was constantly playing like Bela Lugosi, <laughs> Boris Karloff, which are all amazing movies. And right now, in our day and age, of course, they seem tame. But at six, I was fascinated and horrified by it, and. I got deeper and deeper into this like curiosity about what it was and I started to build uh, haunted houses in my garage and they were all duct taped and cardboard and whatever I could get my hands on. I ruined so many things in my house and you know I would, I would bring my friends through and, and try to scare them and it, it got worse because I was then as a latchkey kid kind of given over to my cousins to be babysat at, like as I was like getting older and older, but the um, thing about that is, is that they loved Freddy Krueger. And uh, it, Freddy Krueger was like on the TV with them all the time, and it was really inappropriate, but we learned a lot about slashers at that point, my brother and I. And while my brother went one way and, and went as far away from it as possible, I just got deeper and deeper into it. And I had begun role-playing at that point, but I didn't start with um, Dungeons and Dragons. I started with a, a Palladium product known as Rifts. And Rifts was a very complicated, weird game, but you could do anything you wanted. And like when I was told about what these products were, I was kind of like, yeah, that's cool, dragons and stuff, which I was obsessed with. I mean, I was a miniature painter. I kind of started from that, all the hobby side of things. But I, I got 
uh, enamored with the idea that you could literally do things other than just chase down dragons and, and go to castles and do... It felt so restrictive, even though, uh, as it, it's been proven many times over, that Dungeons & Dragons does have a very expansive uh, world set. You can go to different places, you can do different things. But the idea that immediately there are guns and there are you know mysteries and there's horror and there's all this other stuff that you can put into a game, it really intrigued me. And at the time... There wasn't a whole lot of other things because I had yet to discover Chaosium. But uh, that happened soon enough, and I started to play games that were really narratively driven and were focusing more and more on the horror elements. And I took all this love that I developed over the years, and I started to really pour it into uh, the, the role-playing. And because, like many uh, Forever GMs, you, you sort of realize that nobody's going to play if you don't start it. And so you start throwing the games, uh, offering the space, and bringing people in, and telling the stories. And as you do that, uh, accidentally almost, you start to become better and better at it. And uh, I just kept going, and I wanted to keep doing this. And my friends and I went through many, many different games, and as I started to progress, uh, I started to realize that there were holes in the industry. There were things that I wasn't seeing out there. And I, I, I discovered the indie rag scene where you've got all these great one-page RPGs and that there's a whole renaissance that's slowly happening. And, and here we are now in what I really do consider the golden age of role-playing, where we have so many opportunities, so many options, and horror is now a very real subset of all of that. Um, through a, a series of... Uh, Encounters. I actually became very involved with Geek and Sundry, and I started to work a lot with Ivan Van Norman, who is one of the founders of Hunters Entertainment. And Ivan is a very busy man. Um, and I started to just pick up his slack. I'm like, hey, you need me to do something here? Great, I'll do it. Uh, and, and sooner or later, at some point in that whole uh, adventure, I ended up taking over and sort of like helping to steer where we're at now, along with some really amazing people like Marquia. And we're so excited about where horror is going, and we're focusing on it. Um, and we're really excited to be here today. I'm super thankful. Thank you, Crystal, for having us. Yeah, thank you guys so much. Um, if you guys didn't know, these guys were panelists last year on a horror panel. We were doing Horror 101. And so they all came and wanted to do another one, and I thought that they are such experts. We're going to actually focus on tone and theme today and horror. And so we are really going to deep dive into that. If you are just kind of scratching the surface of horror. I do have two other panels, Horror 101, later today in this room. I think it's at like two o'clock. I wanna say it's two o'clock, something like, it is? Okay, um, please come to that. We are actually gonna be going over the horror genre as a whole and some of the games and stuff like that that you can play. Um, also, this panel is an hour and a half and I understand that some people just cannot do that. If you do need to leave, just feel free to Peace out, nice <laughs> um, um, So, what I, I, every single panel that I talk about, um, specifically with horror, is always going to have um, safety tools. And I want to talk about it in the context of the tone and theme of, of horror games. And so, I just want to touch briefly upon that. And then, there are a couple of other questions that I came up with as we get deeper in that involve safety tools. So kind of circling back to this conversation. So what safety tools, safety tools do you use or safety things do you put in place? I know some like home games don't have any. Um, 
which is fine for that table if it works for you guys, but always knowing your options and having something available for players is always nice to have, especially when you're really going deep into something. So, who would so like to like, start with that? Do like snake drafts, like you get around? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. no. Um, you know, that, that's a really broad question. I know we have an hour and a half, so yeah. let's dig into it. Um, I use a number of tools, and I've evolved and learned as we've kind of like progressed and, and moved forward with a lot of our games. Um, I think that what Marquia was talking about before uh, was really the first public game of, of horror that I was really running for a long period of time, and, and it was a three-year three game, so uh, we learned a lot about each other, and we learned about kind of uh, a lot of things that you can do. Uh, performative uh, role play is something that I think is intrinsic to not just people who are going on to Twitch or YouTube or trying to, to bring that forward. This is a narrative art. We're telling stories. And as a part of that, we're working together in a collaborative room. I'm not telling anybody anything new here, but I'm pre uh, prefacing all this so that I can get to the, really the heart of what I'm trying to say, which is when you're in that space and you're sharing that space, the, 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 the game master is only part of that. And I know that there are gamers out there that um, feel that those there's a power shift, but it really is more about facilitation. And if you're the game master, what you're doing is you're providing a space. You're creating a world. You're making a bubble for your players to live within. And it's a very giving uh, role. It's very generous, but it's also something that has uh, a deep need for empathy. And I think this is true of any game, but if you're actually doing horror, all of this ramps up to 10. The reason that I think we all love horror is because it is so extreme. Because we're taking ourselves to the really far ratty edges of emotion and we're challenging each other. And so for me, horror is like a, a really good tennis match. Or I, I hate sports metaphors, why did I say that? <laughs> um, but it, you know, for lack of a better term, it's a game where you're passing the baton back and forth, right? It's not just about what you as the game master can provide. But since you're in charge of the space and the world that you're creating, you have to find a way to communicate with those players because in that facilitation, you're going to empower them. You want them to take the reins, you want them to be able to run the story, but you want them to offer you something. And what you can do, for me at least, every game that I do, there is uh, two things that I always use, which is first of all, session zero, which is important in any game, just so that you can get to know people and you know what you're trying to do. But that allows you a forum to bring people in and to really get to know them. Um, find out what's on the table and what's off the table. There are a number of different ways to do this. Um, sometimes it's better to individually talk to people and then bring them all into one space so that someone feels comfortable revealing you know, truths about themselves that maybe they don't want to. Uh, reveal in a large group setting. Uh, you have to be receptive to whatever it is that your player's offering. Find the things that they're willing to explore. Some of us have things that we don't get a chance to really face, and those things can be very cathartic <coughs> and fun uh, fears to kind of dig into, and you want to find what they're okay with. But just as importantly as finding how far you can, you can push that, uh, that fear, like if somebody's afraid of spiders, but not to the point where they're actually arachnophobic and just the mention of it or hearing about it, or somebody does a real visceral description of spiders, all of a sudden somebody just notes out, they're triggered and you've ruined the game. Uh, this is not uh, something that is without benefit to everyone. So I know that there's the, in some circles, there's the idea, well, we don't need safety tools because moving forward like this is gonna make it edgier and raw. 
uh, you're making a mistake there because what you want is to make it as edgy and raw as you can without crossing the line. And as soon as you cross those lines, unbeknownst to you, you've popped the tires on your entire game because somebody at the table is shut down. So a session zero is essential. How you run that, we could talk about it for an hour and a half, I'm sure, but I, I will say that. And then at the table, having something that will allow you to uh, visually, easily communicate this, the, the mindset and, and the understanding that you have with your players. Now, there's a couple of different ways to do this. We've used a lot of different tools. My favorite tool that we've, we've been using and, and I've used and incorporated into a couple of games is a, 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 a traffic light system where you have a visual that you can point to um, and you know lines and veils are great and all of that, but if it's unspoken and not, I've found more than once running really extreme horror that people find things that they don't know about until that very moment that you've described it is a trigger point. And you want somebody to be able to communicate to you in a way that they feel comfortable. Some people don't feel comfortable saying, hold on, stop the game. I can't do this. Uh, give them an easy out. Just moving, like I use chess pieces, you can move a chess piece from uh, green to yellow. And as soon as that chess piece is on yellow, you know we're in the zone that you as the game master should really be paying attention to everything happening around you. How are they reacting? Are they okay? And sometimes you need to put the stop on it before because maybe they don't really realize that it's hard. You gotta realize what's performative and what's real. But if, if you watch people long enough, you'll know. It's in their eyes. Like maybe this is doing damage, we should stop and check in. Checking in is an easy thing to do. It doesn't ruin your narrative. And then if they go from yellow to red for any reason at all, it's your responsibility to put the stop on it and to find out what that is, evaluate it, find out if you can go back into the game and then do it and do it in a respectful way that doesn't call anybody out or make them feel uh, lesser than for having said, you know what, this bothers me. I, don't, I didn't know that I had a thing about eyes, but now I do. Everyone has a thing about eyes. That's normal. Yeah. <laughs> I have a thing about describing things being put into eyes. <laughs> um, all right. Contact yeah. yeah. Let's, let's, yeah. No, I've spoken enough. I'm sure there's a lot. So um, three things out of what Knox was saying. If you're interested in seeing um, our game Outbreak Undead, uh, it is on YouTube. Uh, YouTube.com slash Hunter's Books. Plenty of seasons for you to, to really get into the nitty gritty, gritty with everything. Two, I don't know tennis very well, but there are no batons. <laughs> no. I don't know. <laughs> Clearly. Um, and uh, three, just to dwell uh, for uh, any international listeners or people that are uh, in the room in America, we have uh, the traffic light system is green, uh, yellow, and red. Oh, meaning point. green is completely, mm -hmm. you know, go for it. Everything's cool. We're in the clear. I'm, I'm on board with what you're doing. Yellow is, whoa, okay, I didn't know, but that might be a thing for me. Let's do a fade to black on this scene and move forward. That's what a yellow means. Mm -hmm. Where it's like, I'm not comfortable with this. I'm, I'm willing to go along, but we're creeping forward. And then red is a full stop. Something happened. We can talk about it if you know that's the kind of table that you have. But otherwise, it's like nope. Next scene, it's like that is that is the nope. Um, something that I, I would like to talk about with safety tools. There is a very big difference, like nuance wise, with what you see on Twitch, um, like what Knox was saying, the performative uh, tabletop role playing games, and then what you have in your home games um, with people you may or may not know, or when you're at a convention and you may or may not know. Um, 
in a way, I feel, and I'll go on the record with this, that performative um, TTRPGs can be a tiny bit toxic because you are very aware that you have an audience, so you will let things slide that normally you wouldn't. And like afterwards, you'll talk to someone unless it puts you into the red zone. Um, I've talked to people um, after games, you know, um, and I always use the term co-create, whether I'm a GM or a player, because we are literally mm -hmm. co-creating this world together. Uh, and I've talked to uh, fellow players and they'll be like, wow, if we had been in a home game, I would have shut it down right then. But because we were in the middle of a show and it was live, I waited until another hour afterwards. It's like, but that sat on me the entire time. So keep that in mind for if you're going to do the Twitch element of things or kick or whatever, whatever platform, uh, that if you're gonna do that, having that session zero, checking in with your players ahead of time is going to help you retain players, um, both in attendance and their respect for you. Mm -hmm. <laughs> because then it's, you know, you care about what they are bringing to the table as much as you do for yourself, for what scenarios and everything that you've developed for their characters. Um, other quick safety tools, I mean, um, if there, there are some that have uh, issues with reading body language, but you can come up with something very simple. Be like, hey, I put my hand on my shoulder and it's like, even this is like, I'm not comfortable right now. Obviously this is me doing this meaning to, and I'm like gripping my shoulder. That can be a very simple, non, you know, focus attention thing on that person, but you see them, you're like, oh, oh, okay. So yeah, so uh, we're gonna move on from the spiders in the people's eyes thing, <laughs> you know, and, and now, we're, now we're on to this instead. Um, uh, and then just another quick fun thing that when someone has their limits and they have told you their limits, we'll just say spiders, because I'm not gonna talk about eyes right now. Um, we'll say it's spiders. That gives you the opportunity to um, be more imaginative with things. Maybe they hate spiders, but maybe they're really cool with disembodied hands that like move around and go like, you know, um, what's his name? It? Cousin It? Yeah, maybe they're real it's cool the, with that. Thing. Yeah, the thing, the thing, cousin it's the hair. Yeah, yeah. Okay, that's a yeah. whole different thing. <laughs> yeah. um, so like maybe they're cool with that. So maybe instead of spiders, you have a bunch of those in your haunted house and then you can you know, go off to the races. So mm -hmm. it, it really is an opportunity for you and for them to grow. Mm -hmm. I look at I me, mean, it's pretty hard to, to add on to, to what uh, Knox and Makaya said there. Um, I think I would say is this, uh, it, it might sound like a, if some of this stuff is new to you, it might sound like, oh, that's a lot of work, particularly for those of you who are taking notes. Uh, I think it's just, um, it's about like setting uh, your, your mindset and how you perceive these things. Like there are some, um, yeah, I guess we can call them people. There are some people who think that safety tools are ruining gaming and things like that, where it's actually like the complete opposite because you might have, some, like say for instance, I, I really like, body horror right mm -hmm. i think that's really cool it, it upsets me in the correct way yeah the cronenberg and stuff yeah. and and there's some people who you know that would be in the red zone for them that's right mm -hmm. and maybe i really want to run a body horror game you know and if i can find people who are all okay with that who are, and i know where their you know their, their limits are what their the colors are for everything and i can match it all up i know oh this is my perfect body horror game we can explore all the 
fun things about body horror that we want to do. That's just an example. It actually allows you, using these kind of systems, allows you to have a deeper, more trustworthy uh, experience of, uh, of horror. Like, we, like, like Nox mm -hmm. said, like, a lot of us like horror because we like extremes. And, and what you think is extreme, what you're comfortable with, is completely different to somebody else's. It's a lot like comedy. Like, what makes me laugh may not make you laugh. And like you said, like, a comedian's job, like a horror GM's job is to go up to the line without crossing it. And once you cross the line, you know, it's, it's, no, it's no good, right? Um, some tools that I use, I, I think I talked about them last year, uh, but no one mentioned them yet, is, uh, and I'm going to get it wrong, I'm pretty sure it was put out by Monte Cook Games. It's called yep. the RPG Consent Checklist. Mm -hmm. It's yeah, free yep. to download. Um, it basically is a, a whole list of... Um, inverted commas common trigger points and, and yep. things and and it actually has for each one of them it has a red yellow or green mm -hmm. spot for you to tick and there's also some blank space for people to add custom ones um so what you can do is, is I, I generally send these out to all my players you know separately um and i tell them look you can send it back i'll obviously know who it's coming from and then what i'll do is um i will remove everybody's names and share them all with everybody so that way people can feel comfortable to share I mean, ideally, share their trigger points without necessarily saying, oh, yeah, that was me, you know, because sometimes we have sensitivities that we don't necessarily want to share with everybody, right? Now, you can do that by just keeping with the GM. Um, however, what i found is it is kind of important for everybody <coughs> to know what all the no-go zones are because if somebody, you know, especially in a horror game, starts to, you know, maybe do some body horror without knowing that, you know, uh, my friend Sally is really not okay with body horror, but we didn't tell everybody that. That's, that's a whole other different thing, right? Um, but, but yeah, that's but all I would say is just it, uh, if, if, if you've got any pushback or any hesitancy about this kind of thing or it's like, oh, why can't we just dive into it? We're going to talk about session zero soon too. Um, it, it just change your mindset and like this is actually a very important tool, not just for people's safety, but it will make your game so much better, especially if like me and you've been in a situation where you're either you're at a game at a table and you're like, I'm not sure if everyone's cool with this right now, so I can't enjoy myself even if I am mm -hmm. cool with it. So, yeah, that's what I Can I add something? Uh, yeah. I, I, you know, it, we've been talking about all this, and, and I, I realize uh, if you're running the games, even if you're a player, uh, it's possible that during this process you're going to make a mistake. You're going to go too far. You're going to cross that line and not know it. It's just as important to be able to immediately own that mistake and move forward and fix it. Whatever it takes to uh, correct the situation, find out what that is. Uh, in doing this, it's, it's, it's something that is much more, um, it's an easier thing to do, to make a mistake. And it doesn't mean that making the mistake is egregious and you're never going to you know, regain the trust of the people around you. That will only happen if you don't own up to the mistake and you know, place it back on the player or the other player and not correct the situation. Um, you know, ownership of mistakes is something that I think is really important because it allows you to correct and to improve not only yourself as a game master or a player, but also the gaming experience for everybody involved. And also, I just want to um, point out or like give permission, you don't necessarily have to have hard stops that are fears. For instance, mm -hmm. I'm a teacher. I'm a middle school teacher. My students are old enough to be able to search my name on the internet. <laughs> and I am on actual plays where I am murdering people. <laughs> um, and so I don't ever want them to see me 
creating violence against children. Sure, yeah. And so that is a hard stop for me because not only is that, could that be traumatizing for them, but also I work in a conservative school district, which is even more, I'm very open about it. So my, like my, my, you know, administration knows that I do this stuff. So they are aware of it, but parents may not necessarily be, my students are, but that's their middle schoolers that does, sometimes doesn't get communicated and parents might stumble upon this too. Um, and then how does that look on the school district then when they knew about this and, you know, so that is a hard stop for me only because of my job, but also the fact that I'm also earning trust with my kids mm -hmm. and seeing something like that could be really traumatic for a child. Yeah. So I say child, I mean middle schooler, but yeah. yeah. But that, that is another good thing about the, the, the tool I mentioned, the RPG consent checklist. Yes. It isn't just a list of fears. There are like mm -hmm. very specific like actions yep. that, that yeah. are in there. Yeah. Like romance, for instance. Yes, yeah. literally, yes. Yeah. So like, it you know, like are, you, yeah. are you comfortable with a player character romancing an NPC character? Mm -hmm. Like, okay, great. So yep. how comfortable? Flirting, yes, okay. Um, uh, On-screen kissing, okay. Uh, more than that, explicit, no, oh, okay, okay, no problem. Yep. You know, so our NPC and NPC, um, PC and PC. So it, it really is a fantastic tool, and I've yep. used it in so many different games now. You know, okay. oh, I was just gonna say that um, as a game master, I, you know, the, the indie scene actually uses a term that I really like. And Spencer Stark actually has, I think, popularized it with Alice is Missing, but the, the term facilitator. Yeah. Uh, if you have things that you as the game master don't want in your game, yep. you, you have to be, consent to the stuff that you Yeah, do yeah, your, your consent is a part of this. Again, it's not about uh, trying to push past because you're trying to give your players an experience. If you're doing damage to yourself, that's not good for anybody either. Um, and, and, you know, letting your players know up front what you're not going to be doing. We're not going to be playing a game that causes harm to children. You know, that's not going to happen. And that lets them know that when they run into that child NPC, yes. you know, you're not no going to do no anything. No one's gripping. Yeah. No one's watching. No like, what's going to happen here? Yeah. yeah. No. Um, and if you really want to, really want like an actual real world um, example of this, Dimension 20, um, A Crown of Candy, mm -hmm. um, several of the players have struggled so hard with that actual play and they talk about it they talked about how, what they did afterwards how they were able to continue those relationships and look other people in the eye that were doing horrible things to each other because it's a game of thrones style candy land like if you're not familiar with it it's really awesome actual play if you like actual plays but it was horrific and a lot of the players struggled with that and they do talk about that in some of the the interviews and stuff like that watch those and see how they did that because you can take parts of that to incorporate in your own games. Mm -hmm. Okay, so now we get to go into some of the other deeper stuff. So um, we're going to talk about what is tone and what is theme because like from a, is it the same as like a literary standpoint or is it different when it moves into RPGs and how do we, um, represent that in a game? How do we convey that without right, outright saying, this is the tone, this is the theme? Is it implied? Is it open for interpretation? How far do you want that open? Because it can get interpreted way different for some people. Mm -hmm. So how do you, as you're writing these things and as a game master, kind of set those limits? 
and what are they like for both tone? What is it? Tone and theme. What is it? And then how do you represent it? Tone and theme, and how do you represent it? Okay, I'm on the spot here. Sorry, I was replying to a Slack. We knew that. That's why we I know that's what you're pointing out. I feel so bad now. Um, are we talking just really broadly? You can get as deep, deep or as, as broad as you would like. Uh, look, one of the things, we did touch on this last year as well, and you mentioned something that I've been doing since then. And because this came up, and look, it'll be it's a broad topic, but one of, the, one of the core things is how do you um, maintain the mood at your table mm -hmm. with the tone? Um, there's this thing with D&D, uh, which it feels to be pretty, pretty common, um, and y'all can tell me if you're wrong, uh, if, I, if I'm wrong, but there's this concept of uh, the world is serious, the player characters are not. Seems to be sort of like a sort of joke. Like I saw the D&D &D movie on the plane on the way here. I'm like, oh yeah, it's like, like it's all very fun and jokey. Mm -hmm. Um, and because D&D is so prevalent, a lot of people do bring aspects of that, like, oh, I'm going to try and make a joke or a comedic thing in, uh, in, in your game, and it can sort of, um, it can break the mood when that kind of thing happens. It doesn't have to be comedy, though. There can be anything that can sort of break the mood you're going for, particularly if you're running a game um, where it's like, you know, very personal horror, like, you know, Vampire Werewolf or Hunter or anything like that, right? Um, and uh, the thing that you mentioned last year that I've since employed uh, is uh, now I may be misquoting you. No, oh, yeah. ago. I'm right here. You, so said, you, know. you said something like, "I just, I just, I don't react," mm -hmm. and you just stare and you acknowledge it, but you just stone-faced mm -hmm. <laughs> continue. I've broken him a number of times. Oh, you have? Oh, okay. yeah. <laughs> rarely. But, but mainly, he does the straight. I'm, I'm, I'm yeah. the, I'm the person that you're talking about. Well, I, I believe that. Oh, um, you, pardon me. No, 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 oh, no, 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 yeah. no. Uh, <laughs> let me use. Oh, words. she's the jokester. No, no. You're the jokester. I'm, I'm a jokester. I, yeah. I, I, but I, you know, I wield my power responsibly. You know, mm. always use humor and horror responsibly. You're not trying to steal focus. You're not trying to shift the tone of the piece. You're not trying to make it into a horror comedy. What you're doing, what I feel like I do with humor is I just make it very relatable and very human. For me that in, in a life or death situation, mm -hmm. I feel like there needs to be a pressure valve of a very human moment. And for me, those human moments just tend to be pretty humorous. Um, in the circumstances so you know everybody looks at each other at table we we laugh for a second and then you know Knox kills me <laughs> so i mean it's it's entirely possible as far as it and it, it's a learnable skill not everybody has the comedic timing with with things i do recommend um now that the world has opened up to a certain point of doing things like taking an improv class taking an acting class, get to know where those pauses are, the dramatic pauses, the comedic pauses. Um, I mean, maybe you'll find yourself in like a whole new side quest of your life where you're just like, oh, I'm in community theater now and I'm, I'm living it up. I'm doing the whiz, you know, in, in Indianapolis, which actually I would see that. I would, I watch, would. Yep. I would watch the whiz in Indianapolis. I wonder how they do that. Um, <laughs> sorry. They just uh, put it on on Sunday. It's just you know, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, they're practicing. Yeah. Sunday's the show. Sunday's the show. <laughs> Do it. Um, but yeah, I mean, something like that is just going to help you also grow as a person. And you growing as a person is great for everybody. Great for you, great for the people around you. Um, 
so yeah so i'm i'm gonna i'm gonna be yeah, the gray area when it comes area. when it comes the, to the um i mean i i use a lot of things like there's some you could say these are these are common basic things but uh the lighting in your room and the mm -hmm. music that you put on can make a really big difference um i would love to hear your thoughts because i still i still struggle to maintain mood when apparently my world of darkness group can only meet at like 2 p.m. on a Tuesday and it's sunny outside and I live in a very bright, you know, how can you do that? Whereas you prefer to play at night with music and things like that. Um, there's, if you're running a game, um, I think a really important thing to do is learn uh, or practice, uh, I guess the word for it would be pacing. And I don't mean the overall pacing of the story. I mean the pacing of how you're presenting scenes mm -hmm. and such. Um, so I come from like a like literary writing background. There's a very, there's a very sort of, 101 example of you know if you're writing a scene that's very uh tense or uh, action-packed you use very short sentences so it's like things that are happening one after other then when it's things more language you can take you know you can do a run-on sentence or a long longer sentence but the the structure of those sentences um has an effect on the reader to to you know basically tell them without telling them that things are tense and i found that um to really drive up the the tone intensity of scenes is I slow right down. If, the, if I, like, say for the opening a door to, you know, like a horrible murder scene, I won't do it now just in case there is any lines and veils going on. But, you know, if you're describing something, this is, this is going to be a big, intense moment, mm -hmm. I slow right down. And between each sentence, like, I wait a few seconds. And I notice when I do that, um, uh, no, one's, no one's interrupting. They, mm -hmm. uh, they want it, they, because, well, one, they don't have all the information yet, so I can't set up their joke. But they... <laughs> <laughs> um, Doing things like that in, in certain scenes, I find really drives home the, the, the intensity. And when you, as the, the GM or keeper or storyteller, whatever the word you want to use is, um, is, is, is piloting that vehicle. Uh, and I also find that once you, everybody in that room has that level of trust, which is actually really built upon with you know, the, um, like the, the, the safety tools in place, they, they, everyone follows in and it really makes for a much more consistent experience. But if it's Sunlight outside, I can't do that. Sorry, that's the sun. Black, that's blackout curtains. Yeah, well, yeah. yeah. some money? <laughs> <laughs> blackout blackout curtains, curtains is actually a good note. I mean, listen, the lighting, the sound, all these things are really uh, important because horror, like I think all good experiential narrative storytelling, is about every sense. You know, get some candles, you know, uh, find ways that you can surprise your players because, like we've already been talking about, you know, uh, so much about tone and the expression of, of that story is about pacing, but it's also about um, being able to, while you're pacing, read the room and make choices based on what needs to happen next. And this is where the improv classes can help because it's not even so much about you being a good actor or performer. It's about you being able to train your brain on how to shift gears at a moment's notice. This is a learnable skill. Anybody can do this. And, and like anything, some people are more prone to being good at it from the start just based on whatever their background is or whatever those uh, factors might be, but you can learn these things. And you know, there's not really any uh, GM classes out there that are gonna really teach you this stuff, but there are so many different uh, things that have been around for centuries, you know, about performance and about, not just performance, but narrative storytelling. Because as writers, it's the same thing. Take ownership of that. And, and you know, we're talking about comedy and horror. They're so closely related, mm -hmm. it's silly. Mm -hmm. I mean, these are two sides of the same coin. And pacing is essential to both. Now, when you're talking about D&D &D and all that, yeah, pacing's important and, you know, action and, and that there's a timing thing, a component there as well. But it's kind of a, it's not a symphony. 
you know, in my mind, it's, it's a, a small band, it's got four pieces, you know, but when you're dealing with every tool in your toolkit and you're really bringing out all the stops, you've got so many things that you can incorporate and you can bring to the table to give your players a full experience. If you want tone and pacing and all of that worked into your game, find the things that, again, you can do to, to, to let your players know this is not the end. I would keep coming back on it. I'm not trying to trash on the end. No, no, no. This isn't that game. For, this for those that are is. listening, he's wearing like a shirt that says D&D in a big old circle and a, you know, red hey, I've, dash I've actually, I've actually got worse. Can I con- confess to something, everybody? And you might kill me after I say this. I've never actually played a game. Get out. <laughs> now, I have played a lot of Pathfinder and I'm told this so Oh, oh <laughs> my God. Get out. Why are you still here? You know. You knew what you just said. Um, look, I mean, yeah. So it's, it's, it's very much uh, the thing that you want to bring people to the table and just break their expectation. You know, that can be as simple as a candle or turning the lights down low. People's mindsets immediately react to that and they want to get engaged. Your job, if, you're, if you are the keeper, the facilitator, the game master, whatever that might be, is to provide them with that experience. I mean, you know, take some, take some, uh, some glee in shaking things up. Uh, one of my favorite tools is finding ways to genuinely create jump scares. Now, you might think, oh, you can't do that at the table. You can do that at the table. <laughs> you have to build the right tone. You have to have people on the edge of their seat. And really, it's all about building towards it. Everything you do before the jump scare is very important. If I came in and just slapped on the table, some people might do that, but that's not because I just slapped on the table. That's just distracting. You have to earn it. And to earn it, you slowly build. The quieter and slower everything is before the pound or whatever that might be is going to get people's attention. Uh, There is a Game Master series that you can find on YouTube. Geek and Sundry did it. Mm -hmm. Uh, If you, youtube.com slash geek and sundry, and you actually, I think it's legit called Game Master series. Um, I'm on two episodes in that. It's uh, me and Amy. Is it Game Master Tips? Is that? Mm. No, it's... Do you, Do you know the name know? of it? We should know, but we don't. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm sorry. I thought I heard a noise over there. I'm not giving you homework to look <laughs> no, that up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> look that, that up. You have Google. Tell us what that is. <laughs> um, it's called Game Master Something, and it has it has a nice title to it, and I'm sure someone workshopped it very hard, and I'm just not remembering it right now. But I, I'm on two episodes there, one with uh, Amy Borpel, where me and Amy oh. talk about uh, exactly what Brian's talking about, like building... Um, building the atmosphere and things that you can do, like different tools, like incorporating poetry, incorporating um, aromatherapy, you know, how to Pavlov, Pavlov's dog your um, table kind of a thing. And then the other one that I'm doing with um, Eric Campbell, and uh, we're talking about how to populate your world with um, NPCs and to make them real people, you know, in your in your universe and different tools. So there, but there's like eight episodes and to go ahead and check that out too. Um, I just sort of, Building again on what, what you all said and re- repeating myself from earlier, like some of you might be hearing this, you know, getting candles, getting blackout curtains, you know, um, really creating the mood. I would say, you know, put a little wonder boom, like little microphone things mm-hmm. in the microphone speakers in the, in the middle of the table and uh, connect to your phone and like, uh, you know, throw a couple of bucks to the people at like Sirenscape for like those, like the, the mm-hmm. mood, the soundboards mm-hmm. they do in mm-hmm. addition to the music. That, that's definitely worth it. And again, like, like the safety tool, this might sound like, oh, geez, this is a lot of work. 
but it really it's makes fun. a difference. And those, I, I remember watching, um, I'm, a, I'm a big, uh, Snowy, you can tell, I'm a really big fan of the program Deadwood, if you've ever seen oh. that. So, Ian, Ian, but Ian McShane, who mm-hmm. played one of the characters in, uh, one of the characters, who's this, one of the stars of Deadwood, he talks, they were talking about it in an interview, and he said there was no acting required because they just built a town and everyone was dressed up and it's like when you get there you're like oh okay this is what's this happening this is it yeah yeah and that's like when you walk in you're like oh all right. the, the tone is already set and i'm here and you know some of you might be like oh isn't it a bit tacky to like light candles like you could argue it but like you know it's only once you turn the lights back on right and once you walk in there it's like it's that's something i would say dreadfully human about that atmosphere and i think everybody understands it i think it takes practice too mm. i mean i don't think it's like oh i got the mood right the first time you know like mm-hmm. find out what works and what doesn't work everybody's an individual some people are going to react to different yep. things differently it's a, it goes back to the same thing know yourself and know your players there's there's a certain psychology to using the same type of feeling in the room every time that you play even if you come back like even using the same type of scent, the same lighting scheme, everything like that, even the same like sound as you walk in, gets everybody into that mood of the very first game and into that mindset. Um, if you really, really want to trick your players, I, I worked at haunted houses for many, many years. And really? what, yeah, That's oh yeah, cool. like 17 years I was a volunteer at a haunted house and it was one of the top rated haunted houses in Wisconsin for uh, several of those years. Um, and one of the tricks is if you really want to scare somebody without ever doing a jump scare, use clove essential oil because clove essential oil is what they use in dentist's office to numb your teeth (laughs) (laughs) and it will start making people think and get that feeling of, oh God, something is wrong, but they won't be able to Place it. Yeah. And fun fact, cloves are used in uh, hexing by witches. So yeah. There's something Sometimes, there. Yeah. Yes. Uh, different something. panel, but yes. Different panel. Yeah. Different panel, but yes. So, so if you really want to play on the psychology of that, clove oil is, is where you want to go with that. Um, and we, ha- we had a dentist on uh, in the haunted house who did that. And every time that people walked in the room, they are like, Oh God, it smells like a dentist office. This is my worst nightmare. <laughs> this is the 301 panel, so I'm assuming everyone in the room knows this, but uh, have all of you played Tin Candles? Mm. Oh gosh. Yeah. If you haven't, Perfect. write it down. Yes. Yeah. Because uh, It's a you know, one sheet. It's yeah. Yeah. very, very easy to do. The fact that it's built yeah. into the mechanic, you're watching this candle burn down, that's the life of each player. You can bring these things in, or Dread, which uses a, yep. a tower, yeah. Jenga, which you're not allowed to say Jenga, it's a building tower, <laughs> a block, puzzle block tower. <laughs> Our world. Anyway, you push, you push these little blocks around, and that represents something physical that then relates to the danger that people are in. They're tense because of it, because they have a visual representation of everything going wrong. And I use that stuff in my game all the time. Uh, take whatever you can get that your players will react to to build that tension. And it could be as simple as putting, and I've done this before, Marquia Irmas. Uh, I just don't want you to know my secrets. Uh, I'm like, what's he about to say? Uh, not, nothing to do with eyes. Just, okay. uh, Marquia's been in my games, and I guess it was a joke, but like, I put boxes on the table, and I don't say what's in the box. Yeah. <laughs> what is that? Don't worry about it. And three, yeah. session, three sessions later, he'll they like, find he'll out. Like, position it it's like a silver briefcase and he'll he'll like slide it across the table sit it there and look us in the face and then walk away (laughs) and this is what i was going to say that i didn't want marquia to hear most of the time it's empty (laughs) but then it isn't because i'm paying attention to them and i find out what to put into it based on what they do 
what does what does what needs to be in the in the briefcase is going to be determined by what the players choose. Sometimes you can just figure it out. Too. Sorry, that was nothing. Just just yeah. on what you said yeah, then. Yeah. Uh, going back to the, the safety tools thing with the RPG consent checklist. Uh, those are also cheat sheets to find out what to yep. put in your game. It's well, and it makes you say, and you're like, wow, that game was really scary. It's like, yeah, I just, I'm that good, you know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just, <laughs> to own it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so we talked, this This mainly focused on, like, tone, mm-hmm. right? Because um, horror, even, no matter what genre of horror, is generally going to have the same type of tone. And you can kind of layer the theme and the, the genre over it. So you can still have, like, a scary, scary setup where you have, you know, candles going and everything like that. And you can still do comedy horror with that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. so, so what I want to talk about is... We, we all kind of glossed over theme. Mm. <laughs> Sorry, that was making screwed up the stuff. And, well, no, and that actually fits because, like, as a teacher, theme is one of the hardest things for people to learn. Mm-hmm. And so it kind of makes sense that we all kind of skirted around that. And as a teacher, I'm, no, you're going to, we're going to talk about this. Well, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so um, from a literary standpoint and from a teaching standpoint, theme is like the lesson that you take away or like the big message. It is not really anything, if you're reading a book, theme is not usually spelled outright in a book unless it's something like a fable or a fairy tale. Um, And so how does that really apply to horror? Because is there a lesson to learn or is there some other bigger message? For instance, you know, Night of the Living Dead. We can talk about that for hours. Definitely. or is it literally, you are learning a lesson, mm-hmm. here it is, and what you do with that as both a GM and even like your approach to coming up with stories? Well, um, for instance, something that I like to say with 10 candles, I mean, when you said that, the theme just came to me. For 10 me, candles is amazing for amazing. everything, by so, the way. You guys should check it out. It's like, yeah, it's like touch, it's, it's such a touchstone. I mean, you mm-hmm. know, hats off. Um, something that I keep in mind as a theme for that is that we're all going to die. Isn't that grand? We're all going to die. It's going to be spectacular. How do we live? We're, we're going to die. How do we live? How do we human, um, with that? So that's my theme for 10 candles. Like this time around is my character, the kind that someone falls, they help them up you know, and, you know, help them run along? Or am I kicking them in the face and making sure they stay down so I can get further away from the they that is following us? Mm-hmm. So it's, how do you live? You know, how do you emote? Um, another, another way for like uh, thematics for me is I'll, I'll do, okay, cause, because you brought up, uh, yeah. in, you know, Living Dead, I love zombie movies. It's like, it's cathartic for me. Um, I like the political ramifications for it about like how zombies have progressed throughout our culture, throughout zeitgeist. You know, um, how fast they move depends on um, where we are technology wise. I mean, I've had these very intense conversations about it. What I love about zombies and movies is that it really tells us how we are as humans in crisis. Mm-hmm. And that's what it is with zombies. So for, for me, for a theme, like I'll, I'll uh, let's say um, World War Z. 
uh, wait, is that a good one to choose? Is there a different one that everybody might have in here for zombie movie wise? I am legend. I am legend. Oh, that's mm -hmm. a good one. I, I really it's like, yeah, zombies? you know, it's, you know it's like it's like the other is the infected. Yeah. I mean, twenty eight days later yeah. is yeah. you know they're infected with rage. Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. so yeah, yeah, viral. Basically, uh, a viral outbreak that um, incapacitates people's normal biological rhythms and turns them into the other and then how do we interact with the other do we shoot them in the head because that's the way to bring them down or do we try to capture them like an i am legend and try to cure but in the same way literally become you know frankenstein's monster mm -hmm. by all this experimentation and everything like <coughs> literally becoming the bad guy while you're trying to be the good guy so um so yeah, when, when it comes with themes with like with zombies, when I'm in something co-creating a world that involves zombies, I do think of the theme that I want it to be for the people there. I did, um, I did a short campaign for um, Hyper RPG when we were doing a 10 candles, like magnum opus. We did like 10 months of 10 candles, same cast um, in different scenarios. Think of, um, like American Horror Story, but 10 Candles, we did that. Mm -hmm. um, I took a small part of it called The Afflicted, and you can, it's, I, I'm very certain this is on YouTube. I, I'm gonna steer everybody to YouTube. Um, I believe youtube.com, Hyper RPG, if you put in uh, The Afflicted, Afflicted, A-F-F-L-I-C-T-E-D, uh, I did three episodes there, and my zombies, I made it a thing where um, EPA standards had fallen off uh, and we basically irradiated a bunch of cockroaches that then through their evolution uh, became like zombie cockroaches that then infected the populace. Uh, and then it was more of a hive mind type of situation and the driving force for them was to infect us all because then we would all be part of the hive mind. Um, the afflicted. So for me, it was, um, are you, how are you on, how are you working with on a team? Because it's you versus them, or are they right? Because they were starting to rebuild society in a different way and we were still killing each other and still trying to kill them and kill ourselves. So for me, that's, that was a very long way of saying that's, that's how I feel like thematically for zombies. Yeah, I think uh, theme uh, is even even more so when we're talking about mood. Like we're talking about dressing up mm -hmm. a room, like out the curtains. You can be playing one of your players' house, and they can do that for you. I think the theme really comes back even more so to the GM. That's not to say that we're more important than the players. We're definitely not. That's a whole other panel. Um, but uh, it 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 comes into the narrative that you are you are driving and. Uh, in the same way that, like, you know, if we were to all play Werewolf the Apocalypse and we just roll up characters and, and the, you know, this isn't a rag on D&D, &D, but if we take those characters and just do a dungeon, it's like, well, I mean, why don't we just play D&D? &D? Like, there's a reason you choose to play these other games. And a lot of them um, will, will pretty, when you read them, they'll pretty explicitly tell you, you know, what they're trying to say, what their theme is. If you're playing Vampire, it's like, I am a monster, less the monster I've become. What does that mean? Like, unpack that. That means the game is about... Uh, you know, what does it look like to hold on to your humanity? What does morality look like? Mm -hmm. And then you need to make sure that those sort of 
moral quandaries come up in your game. And maybe they won't, and that's okay. But you, you, I think you have a responsibility if you want, if you're interested in exploring the theme of that game. Again, at the end of the day, do whatever you want with your table if everybody wants to do it. But if you're wanting to explore the themes presented that the game, and a lot of the time the mechanics and the, 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 the lore is structured around, um, I think it, it, it very much behooves you to, to sort of focus on that. Like, um, there's, there's a very underrated uh, uh, World of Darkness game called Promethean the Created. So um, good. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. very good. Oh, you, you, um, it's, so good, it's very good. Um, check it out. But the ultimate goal of that game is to find out what does it mean to be human? Mm -hmm. That is a very, very deep subject, and you can do super exciting things. And I'd probably talk about Call of Cthulhu, but... Um, Call of Cthulhu, it's about, you know, the unknowable, unimaginable horrors from beyond space and time. And that's very broad and confusing uh, because it's supposed to be. And uh, a thing that I practice in a lot of Call of Cthulhu things is that there's two types of endings to things. There's like closed ending, right, where everything's wrapped up in a neat little package, you know. And then there's open endings where things are not explained. And I almost always do that. And some people get annoyed. It's like, I didn't find out what the monolith in the ancient monolith that we found and all the, we didn't find out what that meant. I'm like, no, and you probably never will. And that's kind of the point because yep. human, humans are not meant to know everything. And that's mm. what I think that the theme of Call of Cthulhu is, you know, that that's the kind of, and, and if, but you know, we could play that where I'm like, yeah, and this is exactly what that means. And this is it. And everybody, oh, good. We, we're done now. Like, and you could do that, but that's not going to drive home the theme of the game you're playing. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, I know that this can be really intimidating to people who are not used to thinking in this way or running mm. games in this way, but it's so rewarding. And um, again, there are so many tools out there that you can kind of utilize that, you know, maybe we can guide you to some of those. If anybody wants to find us on the internet, I know everybody on this panel, I speak for them in this. We're happy to point you in some Ooh. directions. Mm -hmm. uh, it's Denton's house. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but but uh, speaking about theme, I have a couple of tools and tricks that I have uh, specifically that might help you. Um, for me, theme, you know, it, it's sometimes very obvious, but I think that you have, as a, again, a game master facilitator, uh, something kind of different than if you were just writing a book or, or making a movie. Um, you have other people at the table who are helping you to co-create. So I always have the apparent theme and the hidden theme. And the uh, apparent theme is what I start with. I know that I'm running a zombie apocalypse game and that survival's on the forefront. And I know that because uh, Rag and Bone is our first uh, series, and I knew that right off the bat we were going to come and it was going to be about these survivors. The whole series is based on people who travel between communities and bring people the things that they need. They're, they're a caravan. And what they do is, you know, there are no highways, there's no other way to get things through, and you had to be a badass to traverse these open wildernesses filled with the undead. And so Rag and Bone is about a group of survivors, many of them died, uh, that made that journey and would travel around and kind of knew this emerging, like, civilization that was burgeoning. And if they stopped doing what they did, all these communities died. And so that theme was really about survival in, in the sense of how does... How does being the lifeline to a community affect a group of people, you know? And, and of course, there's zombies, and it's about dead and not becoming the monster, or you become the monster, and now that you have to be put down because you're bit, how do you survive with all that? That was on the top. But it wasn't until we got about, you know, a few months into the game that the real uh, theme started to emerge, and that was because of what the players gave me. Uh, the theme very quickly uh, became about love, love for each other and love for individualism and how you survive and not only survive, how do you thrive, but who do you trust? Where do you open yourself up? 
you're hardened now by a world that you can't imagine, does that mean that you stop being human? Are you just as dead as the people around you? You're going to make them cry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm right. I'm crying. Um, and, and so, like, here's a good example, too. Like, if you, if you watch your movies that, and series and all that, um, you, can, you can do the reverse engineering. So try to, like, think of things that way, and it's going to help you because then you can start to build things your own way. Uh, Last of Us is about survival. It's about zombies. It's really about fatherhood, you know? Um, and there are lots of ways that you can kind of find out what your primary and your sub-theme are and try to hide the subtext. Uh, I think theme isn't meant to be uh, on your shoulder unless it is a fairy tale or unless that's part of the style that you're trying to run. You know, like morality play is great. You know, like if you're running something like that. And that, to be honest, that's how I run a lot of D&D is like this is going to be very much like a fairy tale. We're going to run it this way. You're going to know what the themes are because it's going to be very, very apparent. Subtlety in horror is, is important if that's the tone that you're going for. Most horror plays into that. Not all horror. I mean, I guess you could even break down Shaun of the Dead. And like Shaun, I know we're still talking about zombie movies. Again, we can talk for three hours about them. But Shaun of the Dead has a completely different tone. But, you know, it's really about two best friends, you know. And so I think that it's not as scary as it seems if once you start kind of training your brain to think differently about the stories that you're ingesting and offering. If you, if you really want some nerd stuff, um, if you take a look at the hero's journey and you apply each of the sections to a story that would fit in within the hero's journey and then analyze the theme in each of those sections, mm -hmm. it's going to be different throughout. Your theme is gonna change, it's gonna evolve, it's gonna end up being something and what you analyze the theme as is not gonna be the same thing as what someone else analyzes the theme as because you come with different stuff than the other person does. So theme is gonna be interpreted differently um, wherever you are in the story, wherever someone is in their personal character story, it's gonna be different for them too. So you just be aware of that, that what you originally set out with the theme isn't necessarily what everyone else is going to interpret it as, unless you say, this is the theme. Um, it's going to be up for interpretation and it's going to change and evolve. And by the time you get to the end of your story, it may be completely different. Joseph Campbell has a bunch of dusty books that you can go get anywhere. Yeah. <laughs> They're great books. They yeah. really are. They're written from a different time. Uh, but you know, if you're familiar with Star Wars, you know that that was definitely what was used by Lucas yeah. to kind of create the whole thing. But there, there's so much more to it than that because I think that that doesn't do its service um, you know, dig into some of those uh, classical sources and you can actually find ways that you can move your stories forward uniquely. Take what you can get around you and then just regurgitate it in a new way. Yep, um, Octavia Butler is a really good resource mm -hmm. for that yes. as yeah. well. Um, she, I mean, because her horror is true, it turned <laughs> true, we live in it now. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So, unfortunately, I do have to go because I've got a meeting. Yeah. I know they're going to do some Q&A stuff. I'm going to leave... Uh, one of my cards at the front here, if anyone wants to take a photo of it, it's got my email and Twitter on it, you can contact me. I'm but... going to be at your panel tomorrow. Okay, excellent. Yeah. Cool, cool. And yeah, I'll see everybody. Amazing. Round of applause. Alright, so what I'm going to do is, um, we have a little bit of time and then I want to do a Q&A um, with everybody in the room here, give you guys some time. Um, first off is if you guys have tickets, um, at the end, can you guys please bring the tickets up here just so that, um, 
Uh, Gen Con is using them for space. And so we sold out this panel. So the more tickets I can turn in, the bigger space we can get next year. <laughs> Um, okay, so um, the other thing that I wanted to talk about is um, when you are playing around with horror and going deep into tone and theme, how do you use, how do you pair that with safety mechanics so that you don't actually give away everything? Mm -hmm. So you keep your visceral horror or your even your like psychological horror um, without giving everything away through foreshadowing. Mm -hmm. So how do you kind of play around with that? That's kind of where we're circling back to the safety mechanics thing. Okay. That's a harder question. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm trying to, I'm trying to think of a... So I'll, I'll leave with an example. Mm -hmm. So there are two. Um, one is that I played in a Bluebeard's Bride um, game mm -hmm. where... Another great game. It's another great game. Um, and it's an actual play. You can find it. It was on the uh, Virtual Horror Con. Um, so it's on YouTube. And... Um, we, as a group, knew what the hard stops were for everybody. They, what, there was no names attached to it, but the, like the whole game, you could see the whole, all the hard stops. So we kind of knew what we weren't going to see in the game. Mm -hmm. And then I've also played in horror games. I did a Wrath and Glory, which is horror, um, Wrath and Glory game, um, where we turned in our um, sheets to the GM but nobody saw anybody else's sheets. Mm -hmm. So we didn't know other than our own. And players, we as players decided we weren't going to give away, like if there's a hard stop and we know, and as a player, I know that I'm not gonna give away my hard stops to everybody. Mm -hmm. We're gonna kind of let other people think that they're, we're edging closer to something and then it not end up being that way. So there was kind of like a psychological thing that the players decided upon to play off of. So, so those are like two examples of where we had all the hard stops. We didn't know whose hard stop it was, but it like the Bluebeard's Bride game ended up being one of the most horrific games I have ever played in, <laughs> even knowing all of the hard stops. And then the other one was we all decided we didn't want to know the hard stops. We weren't going to give away our hard stops. So, okay. Uh, well, uh, for going into that, I mean, I could give a couple of my my tricks away that I, I do in a co-creating worlds to to have that safety element, but also keep enthusiasm for um, the world that you're in. Uh, I introduce a distracting element. Uh, I'll give you an example uh, that I, I've done. Like um, I've given my players a corgi to band around. You know, it's like they have this corgi. It's the apocalypse, but they have this corgi, and they will literally die for that dog. So give them something they love is a really good note. Yeah. So yeah. So it's it's uh, yeah, distracting element. Give them something they can love or they can band together. Something to hold the glue together, and then also how they react with that element, whether it's an NPC or dog or cat or, or whatever, it can be a, a talking amulet, depending on what your game is, um, depending on how they react to that or circumstances that you have when you lightly threaten it, tells you about the, theme, uh, tells you about the mood of the party and how far you can push them in other things. 
So I'll, I'll have it where it's like, oh, this, you know, horde of zombies is coming after, you know, Amelia, the corgi. And it's like, we're going, we're coming for you, Amelia. I'd be like, oh, okay, all right, go, go get, go get Amelia. You're going to save Amelia. One of you's not going to, though. Yeah, one of you is not going to make it. We'll see the. We'll let the dice decide. But um, but I'll let them save the corgi, and they'll feel good about it, even if one of them dies. So, you know, everybody's happy. Everybody's happy in that situation. Uh, uh, another thing that I'll do for a distracting element is that I will give them a big shiny um uh, uh B E E G. You know, big evil. I, I, I always mess big up. Big bad evil guy. Big bad evil guy. A BBEG. I'll give them this big shining thing. Then I'll give them such a helpful NPC <laughs> along the way that turns out to be the real BBEG. But they fonded with them this entire time and they've swapped stories around the campfire and stuff. And then they get to, you know, their real bad, you know, their what they think is their real bad. And it turns out to be a misunderstood, socially, um, uh, you know, awkward person that is just trying to make things work. And then ha 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 ha, this person has, you know, taken all their stuff in the corgi. So it's, you know, but um, yeah, it's, I, I like, I like to have something that I can test the barometer of the inner workings of the party with, whether that's introduce something mm -hmm. you love or a helpful NPC. Um, be prepared though that they might see through that, especially now that I've put that out there uh, and might end up killing that uh, NPC. But before then you will collect some good, it's like a survey you'll collect some good information of how you can progress further with this party. And and to be honest, like um, as uh, the facilitator for the adventure, it feels fun to have a little bit of you in something that's in there. So you're not all the way on the outside looking in. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, I think it's a really important question and I think uh... You know, Martia's dead on. Um, the, I don't hide much, and I'm not trying to. Um, I think that when we do our session zeros and we talk about what people's triggers are, and we're, I'm not afraid of them finding out that this is actually going to be about body horror or like it. You know, this isn't. Everything's not what it seems. There's a hidden threat that actually works in your favor. Uh, again, it's like the box on the table. They they know it's coming. They just don't know where. Um, you know, if I if I sat in this room and I said, hey. Uh, we're gonna listen, uh, you know, to some really good jazz, and it's gonna be high energy and fast paced, and you're gonna, you know, you're gonna feel it. And then I say, uh, it's Johnny Coltrane. You're not gonna have the same reaction to be playing the record, you know, because when you hear it and the music happens, it affects you and you feel it, and then like it's a different experience. It's or like going to a restaurant and seeing what the ingredients on your dish are and then getting the food and eating the food. It doesn't really, in my mind, uh, distract from the art and the craft of what you've done. That's a really good way to analogy to put that that way. So with food and, mm -hmm. <laughs> and music and stuff like that, because a lot of people can connect with that. Mm -hmm. um, okay, so um, I'm going to open it up for questions. If you guys have questions... We have a little bit of time. Otherwise, I do have more questions to ask them. Um, so, yeah. Okay, so what are some tips, or what are your favorite tips to, like, foreshadow either a big bad is coming mm -hmm. or something really bad is about to happen? 
Okay, so um, I'm gonna repeat it just so that this can pick it up in case yeah. it didn't. Um, the question is, is that um, tips for foreshadowing when the big bad is coming or something is coming? Uh, I like to use poetry. Mm. You know, okay. I feel like yeah. that it already exists out there for you. You might as well utilize that. Mm -hmm. um, it's set such a beautiful tone. Uh, you can practice with it ahead of time. Uh, and it's something that depending on how your game is, you can mm -hmm. dress it up in calligraphy or, or print it up and have that in front of each of your players for them to like read along. And and there's, uh, and, you know, it's used a lot in novels, like Stephen mm -hmm. King uses it all the time. Mm -hmm. um, okay. Whether he's makes it up and says that it's from somebody else or he actually uses something mm -hmm. that someone has done. So, but um, I think that that has worked so many times for me. Mm -hmm. So I'd recommend that. Uh, you know, the fact that you're thinking about foreshadowing means that you're doing something right uh, automatically. Uh, it, it's part of fame. I think it's like understanding that, hey, you know, this thing is coming. We know that there's a danger. We know that there's a threat. The more that your players know that before they reach it, the more impactful the thing is by the time they get to it. Um, so just even being aware of that is, is, is the right path. Um, but, but when you're dropping hints and things, you know, go back into your theme. Like, if this is a, a, a villain or an entity that uh, is like, the t does anybody have any teeth issues? Great. So if you, if, if you are, uh, if, we, if you're doing something that kind of cir circles around like a tooth fairy monster that's yeah. like ripping things out of people's heads and taking their teeth and collecting them and that the, the dead bodies that they're finding have had all their teeth removed. If, if while they're investigating all this, you know, teeth are discovered in weird places, you know, um, somebody bites into an apple and there's a tooth inside. Like those sorts of things are going to start to be like, why the hell are there teeth everywhere? And then when you get to the creepy creature that is sitting here with teeth hanging around them in, in a multitude of like necklaces. Oh, okay. That's why we had teeth. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, finding those little things and pathways and breadcrumbs that you can sprinkle ahead, going back to your theme is always going to be a good choice. All right, any other questions? Yeah. Okay, so the question is, do you think Dungeons and Dragons is a good system to run horror in? I'm really interested in this one. <laughs> I, will say, I will say that Marquia and I were just on a panel at Midsummer Scream, and it was about that, the whole panel. Yeah. Uh, of course, Ravenloft came up mm -hmm. uh, with it, yes. And I think uh, and you said to start um, with or just to run horror in? Just to, to just, because like, with D&D, &D, so a, a lot of the game is about like, the, the power of being a really strong character, so I'm wondering how that gels with mm. Okay, well, you know, I'm going to uh, knock you your most. No, just just because he, he, he's, he's heard this before. Um, I, I believe um, horror is about intent. Uh -huh. You know, because for me, horror is life. It is, and it's sprinkled throughout everything that we do. And like, for instance, with D and D, it isn't. I mean, yes, there are uh, zombies and licks and and um, you know, uh, what is it? The, the the crappy dragon. What's the crappy dragon? Is um, what wyverns? Wyverns. Wyverns. Oh, that's totally yeah. as the Kmart dragon. Yeah. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. My my friend Jody Hauser. Like the first time we we battled one together, she's like, "This is just a crappy dragon." <laughs> like, uh, I think she sells merch where she has that on there now. Um, the the thing with uh, D and D is that horror is already in so many places. That it's not just in the monster manual. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I said this in our panel, Midsummer Scream. Think about the spell Modify Memory. 
the very fact that you have someone that if they get to a high enough level, they can erase 24 hours of your life and then restructure it however they want to. And that changes your personality fundamentally. Ultimate gaslighting. I mean, oh my gosh, that's horrific to me. That's horrible. And that has that has nothing to do with a wisp or um, with uh, with Vecna. That has nothing to do with that. That's baked into the system. So I, oh, yeah, go ahead. but yeah, to to come back to answering the the actual question, uh, yes, you absolutely can. It's about your it's about your intent with it. You don't have to have a single zombie in it or a vampire or anything. You can still have a horror campaign because of the things that your players can already do. I think that was probably a, like your question. I, I understand. I think that you're talking about like mechanically, does it work and does it fit and all that. And you know, like, you, is there something better? Uh, well, call it. I mean, we, uh, I have a, a student <laughs> games that I am the creative director and help. Yeah. <laughs> I will be happy to point you at some better games. But I, again, this isn't about trashing D and D. And and listen, mechanically, D and D has certain elements that are built to do what D and D does. It is big action. You said it yourself. It's a power fantasy. Can you put horror into that? You can put horror into anything. It's all about tone, intent, theme, everything that we've already talked about. You can put into any game. I probably shouldn't say this, but the system is irrelevant. Your intent and your game and your table, that's what matters. How you tell the story matters. Ravenloft is a great example. I love Ravenloft. I've, I've played it for years and years, and it's a horror setting, so it does have certain things that are baked into it. It has certain elements that help you kind of convert D&D &D into a horror. However, you can do this with anything. You know, the Forgotten Realms and Dragonlance, any of that can be Tales horror. of Equestria. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, any of it can be done in a way that is horror-themed. But I think that more importantly, if you're, if you're seeking the right way to kind of go about it and play D&D &D in that way, if that's really your quest, or if you just want us to say don't play D&D, &D, but if you're looking for the right way to play D&D &D in that way so that it is uh, pointing towards horror, it's all about those tools that we've talked about here, you know? Um, my suggestion is actually going to use a tension element. So for instance, play D&D, &D, add a dread tower to it mm -hmm. and every time the players have to roll their dice they also have to take something from the tower out and put it on top once that tower tumbles mm -hmm. something happens mm -hmm. but the players never know what that something is or you can take something from like chill where you have coins and you have um coins for each player and then plus one one side of the coin the players can use to do things, whether it's re-roll, add a success, maybe they forgot something that they need now and it's not in their inventory, and you flip it over. The other side is for the GM to use, for the big bad or whatever is coming up. And it could be thematic elements, it could be something that the, the monster can use some sort of omen or foreshadowing no matter where they are in the, in the setting they don't have to be in the next room. They could mm -hmm. be across town. And all of a sudden, your players are getting omens from this thing. <clears throat> Use some sort of tension element. So add that in. Um, and I would talk with your players before as to what it is that you're supposed to do. Because they'd be like, oh, we're playing Jenga. And, the, and if you don't tell them what it's for, they're not going to get that tension. They're just like, okay, I'm confused. I don't know what this is for. This is something extra. This is not in the rules. What is this used for? So say, you know, this is used for every time you guys take an action, 
you have to move one of the pieces and when that tower falls, something happens. You don't have to tell them what. It could literally be you get an omen. It's probably better that you don't it. tell them. Yeah, yeah it's, it's better if you don't tell them. But it could literally be like, okay, well, the tower fell really early because one of our players really does not play Django well. Um, and, and so you give them an omen instead of uh, having a big fight or something like that. So you can use it in different ways, but it has that visual tension there where the players can get that, that feeling and build that feeling up. Can I, can I jump in real quick? The, 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 I, I want to say this about specifically Dread and uh, any um, skill-based uh, mechanic that you might bring to the table. This goes back to knowing your players. Yep. If somebody has a m mobility impairment, don't bring it to the table. Yeah. Yes. Make it accessible. Yeah. Use the coins instead. Or yeah, there's find so many other ways else. to do it. Yeah. It's just the idea of the thing. It's yep. not necessarily the thing. You can build tension so many different ways. But just be aware of it because it's not just the story that you're telling. It's also the tools that you're bringing to the table that might have an effect on someone. All right. Um, so we have like four minutes left. So here's what I'm going to do. We do have to respect the next people that are coming in line. I'm actually going to be outside for a little bit. So if you guys have questions, please feel free to come up. I don't know where you guys need to be. If you guys need to take I'll step off. out for a while, yeah. Okay. And I've got so, Brian's card too. So if cool. anybody wants to take a photo. Um, if you do have um, tickets for this event, please bring them up here. Just set them on the table. I will get them. And then I will be back out. Thank you guys so much for coming, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.